This is the Square Peg Podcast, starring Andrew Lawrence and a cast of mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. And now, here's your host, Andrew Lawrence. Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destinations the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. Thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started as always. The Needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding El Pasoans. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Sines are four really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families during the week, and they rock out on weekends. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com. You can find them on Facebook, and you can download their album on all streaming services. My guest today is a native of Las Cruces. She's a descendant of Mexican immigrants, a musician, a dancer, an overcomer of obstacles, and a producer in the world of digital media. Lupe Martos, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I am so glad you are here. It, it, seals, it seems like deja vu. I mean, we won't go into that. We'll keep that in the Square Peg podcast vault. Uh, as I've said before, but um, no, I'm really glad to have you here. This is uh, a really interesting time, and um, I know we've got a really interesting guest. So you grew up here in Las Cruces in the early 2000s, uh, born in in the ni- late 1990s, a child, if you will. I, I still think because of my age, you're a full, you're a grown up woman. But um, so growing up in Las Cruces in the early 2000s, just tell me a little bit about growing up here. Well, you know, I love my town. I'm a little turned off right now due to the fact that on my way here, I saw a Trump uh, parade oh, wow. with a bunch of flags, and, and it was really long. And so, it was Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't figured it out, we are uh, in election season here in 2020, uh, and there's so much going on. Yeah. I think for me, growing up, I never really saw that type of aggression politically, and it made it really nice because um, when it comes to my upbringing, we definitely used the resources that were given to us through our government. And it's because of those resources that we were able to create the life that we have. You know, a lot of my family members received financial aid from the government to go to school, and they were the first people in our family to graduate with college degrees. So being here, I was the first person in my immediate family to graduate high school and attain an associate's degree because I went to the Arrowhead Park Early College High School here. And I loved it. I loved every opportunity that I was given um, and the belief that they had in us as students, you know, the the endless efforts that were just given to us. And and for me, I am disappointed in what I'm seeing. Well, your experience here in Las Cruces uh, as a, a child or grandchild of immigrants uh, somebody who's grown up now, you know, second or you know, first or second generation uh, in the United States and uh, making use of some of the things that are available to people who don't have uh, and then turning out, um, turning that around and, and, and being successful in life and uh, making good use of those things is not a story that's uncommon. Mm-hmm. Um, I've lived here in Las Cruces uh, 22 years, and um, it's something that I've seen. Um, your family, I believe, is, is your grandparents who came to the United States in the 1960s. Yes, it's my, my grandfather's side of the family. Um, my grandmother's side of the family was already here, uh, living in this area. I definitely feel that history has been 
interesting towards my family. Uh, I am a believer in therapy and in counseling. And my therapist and I worked on a genogram. And we just we kind of just did it so that I could have a better understanding of why the people I love are the way they are. And it's very interesting to see what ran in my family, what type of diseases, what type of sicknesses, and honestly, what type of mental illness we're having to overcome. A lot of this having to do with the fact that there was a lot of war, a lot of things going on. Um, There were people coming and conquering land that wasn't theirs. (laughs) So it's interesting, but um, my family did move north from Mexico City, and they planted their root here in Las Cruces, New Mexico. This is where I was born. Uh, this is where they all became American citizens, and we are very blessed to have the opportunity to be here. Well, and you know something that I actually hadn't we hadn't talked about before. I mean, I knew that at least one side of your family had come to the United States relatively recently, but then there's the other side of your family, and uh, you know, obviously the, the history of indigenous peoples uh, and the history of people uh, who have both mixed uh, indigenous and European ancestry by way of South America, or, mm-hmm. or at least south of what is now. Uh, the United States-Mexican border, which hasn't always been the U.S.-Mexico border. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been, uh, you know, centuries of experiences, and those are all very interesting stories uh, in and of themselves. Now, on your mother's side of the family, how long have they been here? Or do you know um, where they came from and how long and where in New Mexico? Any any stories? You, you know, they've been here uh, since the birth of one of the youngest uncles I have, and he... Uh... I am spacing here, but they were young when they came. So I would say probably three generations now. Okay. So maybe I was getting the idea in my head that worked because like I said, we know the history of the South the United States Southwest Mm -hmm. uh, uh, involves indigenous peoples, obviously. And people were also descendants of uh, people who came from Europe and they go back hundreds of years. And, and I know that there are stories of people um, years ago and that there's uh, a difference uh, much like in, in another episode where I was discussing with another guest about the difference between uh, people from southern New Mexico and how they identify versus the people from the northern side of New Mexico and how they identify and where the where the difference in a lot of their ancestors come from. Right. Uh, I was imagining that that there there may be an opportunity to explore um, some family experiences you had that go that go farther back than I guess they do. Um, yeah, you know, I think for me, I I want to move forward past that because there is a lot of prejudice towards that right now. If my family would have crossed the border this year, they would have been stuck in cages. Well, it, more, so more, it's tough. It's a tough conversation. It, it is a tough conversation, and, and certainly not something I'm trying necessarily trying to steer away from. But mm-hmm. what I was thinking is, uh, and again, we touched on this with another guest. Do you, as a, as somebody who's was born in, has spent uh, almost your entire life in southern New Mexico, uh, and who is a descendant of people who immigrated here from Mexico? Do you? How do you see uh, the people in northern New Mexico and their history, and how it's affected their contemporary culture, as opposed to your experience? And do you feel like there's any uh, competition between the two? Do you ever feel like you've been looked down upon uh, in that regard? Thank you for asking that question. That's a brilliant question. Um, there is a lot more diversity in southern New Mexico and a lot more acceptance. Um, in moving to northern New Mexico for the year that I did uh, do my my work um, for my client, it was interesting to see the dynamic with the Native American culture and the Mexican culture. I saw a disconnect. 
I saw Mexicans identifying with their European, European ancestry, opposed to the indigenous Mestica ancestry that we have. And that flustered me because for me, I find strength in knowing that my people survived the genocide. And for a person to identify with the European conquistador, that bothered me. And that's what I saw in northern New Mexico. A lot of people that would prefer to identify with the European ancestry opposed to the Mestica. And to me, that very much so flustered me because I never in a million years would discredit my ancestry on, on both sides. But I really take pride in my Mestica ancestry. Doesn't it make a little bit more sense, though, given that, uh, you know, uh, I mean, don't want to use the term stock, but uh, the ancestry of a much larger percentage of people in northern New Mexico is a much larger percentage European. So it would kind of make sense that that would be how they identify, though, right? I don't know. You know, I have the same amount of European as they do, you know. It's the same. It's the same thing. We all went through the same thing when Cortes came and 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 took over the the Mexican land of the Mayan, the Aztec, you know, those people that were there. Um if you have Mexican heritage, you are Mestica. Well, you know, something that I hadn't uh, hadn't thought of in a while, but when I first moved here to New Mexico, uh moved here in 1998 and I was uh at the time, you know, I was raised Jewish, and at the time I still had some beliefs, and I was attending the synagogue every Friday night for Shabbat services. And there was a man who, and I remember his name was Ernie Marcus. He's not with us anymore. Uh, he was actually ill at the time. But he was a very brown-skinned man with a, a Hispanic name, and he got to talking about me. I'm like, a cousin of mine, actually, who's from El Paso, uh, wrote, uh, sent me a book on what are called New Mexico's crypto-Jews. And what the crypto Jews are were people who fled Spain during the Inquisition and had to pretend that they were Catholic, but would practice their Judaism in in uh, secret. Mm -hmm. And the thing that Ernie told me that I found so very fascinating, he at the time was exploring his, his Jewish roots. So he was coming to Shabbat services and he was studying Torah. And he said, you know, and this is a man I'm going to guess was in his 50s at the time, maybe older. But he was telling me that growing up in so here in southern New Mexico, that his family had a tradition of having a glass of wine every Friday night. And Friday night at sundown is the beginning of the Jewish Sabbath. And he said, I just always knew there was something. I don't want to say that. I don't know that he used the word different, but he said that always stuck with him. It always stuck with him that his family had a glass of wine on Friday night and it was their tradition. And just throughout the course of his life, he discovered that that's who he was, and that's who he felt he was. He didn't have DNA to prove it, but that's who he felt he was, and that's why he began to explore that uh, a little bit later in life. But I hadn't thought about that in so long until we were just talking about this northern southern New Mexico thing. But, you know, kind of going back to you growing up here, you know, you grew up on the East Mesa, mm -hmm. and you went to school with Cesar Chavez. Yes. And um, what's the other – I know they have the two elementary schools there. One's K through two, and the other one's – Three through five, I believe. Okay, what's and the other one? Sunrise. Sunrise Elementary. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so some of your experiences that you've shared um, from your days in in elementary school uh, are are some of the things that uh, that really stuck with me and really got me interested in 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 the story that you tell. And, and you're obviously a very open person um, on on social media. And 
uh, to kind of go back and maybe just to, for our listeners to know. So I met you a couple years ago. I started training about three years ago at Gracie Baja Las Cruces, a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Academy. And um, your husband, uh, Jacobo, uh, is uh, one of the also the teammate uh, team members there, and he's also a, a MMA fighter. And so through him, I met you, and, and everybody knows everybody on social media. So um, and I, so I started to see uh, what you were posting about some of the, the struggles you had growing up and some of the challenges. And, of course, have seen, obviously, the, the journey that you've made. Um, tell me about the experiences that you had at Cesar Chavez Elementary as a young child 15-ish years ago that kind of put you on this path towards uh, first kind of questioning your your self-worth and your beauty uh, and, and got you to kind of where you were today. Let me hear about some of those experiences. Sure. So um, I go by Lupe, Lupe Martos, but my name is Maria Guadalupe. That's my, my full name, uh, first name. And uh, when I was in school, I remember being referred to as the not-so-pretty Maria. There was a prettier one, and she was lighter-skinned, she was thinner, she was the Maria you would want to see on a TV show, you know, and... And what grade was this? This was elementary, you know. Uh, it was throughout elementary. We we went to school from K through to fifth, and um, that was really hard to, to overcome, you know, being in the school with another person that was popular in the sense of pretty and, and, and better, that was hard. But I definitely thrived in my academics, and that's where I was able to channel my feelings and put my efforts. Um, and then I went to middle school, and everything changed. <laughs> well, and the thing that's uh, – I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised because I know how cruel human beings can be and how, you know, children uh, – if we're going, I'm not excusing it, but sometimes children haven't yet picked up on things like social cues and social graces. The fact that kids would actually articulate those things out loud, um, that would obviously, you know, kind of set you on a course of, of, uh, you know, having doubts about yourself. And, you know, uh, I know you and I have talked before, uh, when you got to middle school, I, I think I asked you, you know, at what point did you, did you, uh, did your, your, your weight become, uh, something you were aware of? Well, I definitely feel middle school. I started doing mariachi, and uh, the uniform is a, a mariachi traje, traje de charro, and the women wear long skirts, and they're very form-fitting. So I was in sixth grade. I was wearing a traje, and it was working out, and then I got into seventh grade, and I had to move up in size. And it had nothing to do with the fact that, you know, I was fat or anything like that. And even if I was, there's nothing wrong with that. But I was starting to develop, and I was starting to become a young lady. And so um, that's really when I started to notice, you know, my body's different. It's not like everyone else's. And um, I was blessed to have an incredible family and support system that just supported me and, and shared with me how beautiful I was and um, empowered me and, and, and worked towards me being more comfortable in the skin that I was given. And, and you know, as a male, maybe that's not something, obviously not something I've had to experience, but... I'm thinking it could be a little bit of a double-edged sword. I mean, uh, I know as a father of a 10-year-old who's very much looking forward to that next couple years of her life and the way her body's going to develop. Um, and, we, you know, we as, as a culture uh, place value on certain assets uh, that, that all women have. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there can, can be a situation of too much too soon. 
uh, and and kind of getting more more attention uh, than you maybe want at an age that you want it, or at least that your father might be. Oh yeah, my or your dad, parents might be comfortable with my poor dad. Um, he was always very attentive on what was going on in my life. Um, maybe a little too overprotective at times, but always had the best interest in, in at, his, at the core of things. Um. You know, I was being approached at 13 years old uh, by waiters, you know, asking me if I wanted to drink. And I'm like, uh, I'm 13, you know, I'm not old enough. For but that. I'd like a drink anyway. Yeah, right. <laughs> of course. Well, you know, you mentioned uh, getting into mariachi. Uh, I also know that you come from a very musical family. Yes. Tell me about when you were, I mean, we all, everybody listens to music. Uh, at what point were you introduced to music as an art form that you could perform and practice at? That's a great question. So, um, I come from a blended family. Uh, my mother had me when she was 16 years old. Uh, she was a child bride. You know, she was 15 when she got married. Um, had me and uh, was able to escape a very, very scary situation with my biological father, who was domestically violent. Um, and at the age of two, she met my father, um, my, my, my father, Aldo Carrillo. And he was a mariachi. He was playing with the university group here. Mariachi Cruces de Oro, I believe, was the name of the group. And uh, she fell in love with him. And I did, too. I was surrounded by my culture. Every, you know, Cinco de Mayo, Dieciséis de Septiembre, we were in Mesilla to watch him play, to watch the dancers, and to just indulge in the beauty of the culture that we come from. And... At the age of five or six, he started to teach me how to sing because I really loved Selena and I really loved like uh, Hilary Duff and all those Disney stars that were singing and acting and performing. Uh, and he taught me Tu Solo Tu, which is a song performed by Selena. And, uh, and that was it. That was when I got hooked. Uh, at eight, he bought me my first violin. And then by 10 years old, I was playing with a youth group here in Las Cruces, Mariachi Espuelas de Plata, and singing and performing. And Now, were you always uh, singing and playing violin? Were there parts or, or groups uh, you played with where you were just singing or just playing? Well, I know that the, I don't know that I've ever seen a mariachi group perform where people, not everybody in the group didn't sing at some point. Right. Um, but I know there are also, uh, if I'm not mistaken, somewhere there are some people who just sing and don't play. Right. It's, what was the breakdown for you? For me, it was always, I was a wholesome mariachi. I played music and I sang. Um, those were the best mariachis, you know, the right. ones that could play an instrument and that could and could sing. And uh, it was funny because that, that, that was something me and my dad always talked about. I wanted to be a solo artist. I wanted to sing and just sing all the songs, <laughs> be the center of attention. And I remember we were talking and he told me, which artist would you prefer to hear sing El Pastor? It's a song that is beautiful, and if you haven't heard it already, please look it up. El Pastor. Steve Carrillo from Mariachi Cobre or Pedro Fernandez? And over Pedro Fernandez, Steve Carrillo, the trumpet leader of Mariachi Cobre sings better than the solo performing artist. Why? I don't know. I can't give you that answer. But he does. And that kind of really inspired me uh, at such a young age because it made me realize, you know, 
I could be a Steve Carrillo one day. I could be a wholesome person. Um, when you're in the back playing your instrument, you are humbled. You are humbled and you're put in your place and you're, you're told you're not going to be the center of attention. You're part of a team. And that like being the bass player in a rock band? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or the Ringo right? in the Beatles. <laughs> well, you, know, you, you mentioned um, when you when you mentioned uh, with your with your dad and being introduced to music and talking about being on the Mesilla Plaza during the uh, the fiestas, you're you're painting a picture that um, could very much be out of uh, I want to say central casting. I mean, it's when you when you think about the culture of Southern New Mexico and the American the U.S. Southwest Mexican American culture, I don't think you can find anything that's more that I would say is more closely associated than mariachi. Mm-hmm. Um, I can tell you, I had an experience. We, my wife and I met a couple. We were in Dallas, actually, and he is a cowboy from, like, Lubbock, Texas, as white as can be. And we were in Dallas. They had moved to Dallas for a while, and he mentioned um, he was having a hard time getting used to seeing so much stuff in Spanish. Street signs and storefronts and things like mm-hmm. that, which is funny because I don't think of Dallas as being that way, but I guess it's all relative. And, you know, I want to say this is about 2010, so I'd lived in New Mexico a uh, little over 10 years. And my first thought was, I don't know how anybody could feel that way. Whenever I leave New Mexico and I come back, I find it the most comforting thing in the world is is to see everything in Spanish and to hear people speaking Spanish and to hear mariachi. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also recognized... I, I don't know, you know, uh, I I think to an extent I get to call it mine because I live here and I'm part of, I've been in southern New Mexico 20 years. Um, I don't have family roots in Mexico, although I do have roots in El Paso for 150 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also aware of the fact that there can be, to some extent, maybe outside of this area, when they see mariachi, when people see movies like Selena and mm-hmm. uh, La Bamba, that there's almost a characterization, uh, maybe this may, maybe be the the mariachi or certain aspects of a culture can become caricatures. Oh yeah, definitely. Do you do you feel that way? And what what are the the examples that you see that kind of make you cringe a little bit? Sure. Um, you know, I think <laughs> I think it bothers me that to a lot of people, mariachi is just loud and it's for the drunk Mexican. You know. For the Mexican that's getting drunk and heartbroken. Um, that's not what mariachi is. It's an orchestra. An orchestra of our people. The people that we're fighting for for justice and, and liberty from Spain. That's where it comes from. And so it's it's power. It's strength. And, you know, I remember playing talón, which is when you play at like a bar or you play at a restaurant. And there were those groups of people that were literally covering their ears so that they wouldn't hear the music we were playing. And as a leader uh, at that time, it was hard. I had to hold my team together. Well, I can tell you in my own experience that there is something about mariachi. uh, There is a sadness to it. um, But there's something about it that's actually very universal uh, that goes beyond uh, a person's ability or inability to understand words being uh, sung uh, in a different language. And no more... There's not a better example of it, and I saw this, uh, I hadn't noticed at the time, but I saw a very long article in the Washington Post several years ago about how a lot of old-school, working-class Mexican-American men really love listening to Morrissey and the Smiths. Are you? Do you know who Morrissey is? I don't know Morrissey, but I know the Smiths. Well, Morrissey was the lead singer of the Smiths before oh, his okay. head got too big, and he, you know, they... <laughs> 
know how that goes. Yes. But no, his whole thing is he just he he sings about melancholy, just being sad and uh-huh. all this stuff, and that how the article was out. The, these sentiments, the two this is very wonderful. Let's talk two about this. very different styles of music in two different languages. Yes. Now I don't know about I don't know that a lot of Morrissey or Smiths fans are particularly fans of mariachi, but they had these pictures of these big tough cholos. Let's like in, that, in yeah. East L.A. who were way into Morrissey. And I have some some friends, some guys that I work with who are, you know, if you were to look at them, you know, outside of work and outside of their uniform, uh, fit might fit some certain stereotypes that you would associate with East L.A., Northeast El Paso. Who They'd love Morrissey. They love. So the thing I hadn't. It's so funny. I hadn't thought about this. Well, so you talk started talking that video, a video of the cholo dancing or riding his skateboard to the uh, dreams song by it's it's the same thing it's just that soothing song that they want to hear and you don't always necessarily think about the universality or or how things can be so universal mm-hmm. um and it, what's just funny all these different things are just kind of coming up yeah now i do i do want to kind of move along you uh mentioned before being uh the the child of a very young young bride yes a uh, very young woman you uh, also were uh, a very young mother a yeah. very young single mother mm-hmm. uh, of a little baby. Tell me about Isabella. Sure. So my baby uh, is my baby. She's precious. Um, I was in a very stressful relationship. Uh, I was a victim of rape, and uh, Isabella was a product of that. Uh, when I first found out I was pregnant, I begged for an abortion. Got on my hands and knees, begged for one, knew that I needed to save this baby from a life of torture. <laughs> Her father was not going to be the best person to us. Um, and God answered my prayers, took her in her sleep. Uh, I did not understand because once I had her, I didn't want to lose her. And I had so much guilt that I wanted an abortion. I had so much on me at that time, not only to be a mother and a mother to a baby at the age of 17, but also living with the fact that she felt everything I felt throughout that whole pregnancy. Um, I was raped while I was pregnant, you know, and she went through all that with me. And I learned that through therapy. And um, there was so much that I carried with me uh, throughout this whole process as a, as a, mo- a mother to an angel. Um, but I'm grateful for what I have. I'm grateful for the experience that I've had. And I pray that I can be uh, a person that can vocalize these these issues and and speak for the voiceless. And you uh, you you said it, but you didn't really are you know didn't get too into detail. Uh, Isabella died when she was two weeks old, mm-hmm. um, and it was determined that it was basically a SIDS death. Yes, uh, two months. Two months, which mm-hmm. leaves you with sixty eight days. Sixty eight days and more questions than answers. Mm-hmm. But at this point, do you have, has it reversed? Do you have more answers than questions? You know, I think the answer is, uh, the answer is that this is what God wanted. And this is my answer. You know, I'm very spiritual. Um, I knew that all I could do was be the best mother I could be because that was what I needed to do. There was no other options. And I did. I tried my best. I was a very sad person at that time. Um, I was working, uh, trying to provide for us. Uh, 
and I was living with my parents, and, and it was tough. There were so many cooks in the kitchen. Right. Um, but I'm grateful for every moment I got to look into her eyes and just indulge in the beauty of life and in the beauty of our God and what he provides us and what he gives us. And, and uh, it, if anything, it, it got me closer to him. Well, you know, in a lot of ways, and, and, and there are other ways and other things about you that um, uh, make me admire you, uh, one of the things I'll say is, you know, as somebody who uh, who has struggled for years with my doubts about there being a God or things like that, and, you know, I'm not saying, I, I don't know. I'm, I don't believe that there is. I don't believe that there isn't. I, uh, But I will say that I'm very, um, uh, I, I'm thankful that, there are other people who have gone through, and we all go through traumatic things in life. And when I see somebody uh, who deals with uh, the adversity that you've dealt with and the, and the loss and the tragedy, uh, when I see that you're able to find that kind of comfort and that kind of guidance, um, I'm very happy for you, obviously. Thank you. And um, and, and I'm happy that pe- there people have the ability to find, um, whether it be through their, their spirituality, their faith, or anything else. Um, above all else, it gives you the strength uh, to become who you are now. Now yeah. we're going to change gears here just okay. a little bit because you know this is uh, the point, and I'm not going to do a big lead in here. But um, this is a chance of the show where I get uh, give you the opportunity to um, call somebody out who you believe is not up to snuff, uh, somebody who's getting a lot of headlines, somebody who is famous for all the wrong reasons, somebody who you think does not deserve it. Uh, you've got five seconds. Your answer cannot be Donald Trump. Go. Okay. So I would say that right now Johnny Depp is my pick. I don't even know what's going on with Johnny Depp right now, but I will tell you that Johnny Depp is our jabroni of the week. Our jabroni of the week is brought to you by the Cardenas Law Firm. Finding an attorney to help you with your legal issues can be rough. How do you find an effective and honest attorney without sacrificing your financial health? The Cardenas Law Firm breaks the mold by offering exceptional service without breaking the bank. You can find them online at www.cardenaslawfirmllc.com or by calling 575-650-6003. Don't call some jabroni lawyer at some jabroni law firm. Call the Cardenas Law Firm. Anyway, Lupe, so, you know, at the age, uh, you know, as a teenager, you experienced this incredible loss, uh, but you had already attended uh, a magnet school for middle school, correct? Mm -hmm. What school did you go to? La Academia Dolores Huerta. And that was the music and arts school? Yes, magnet programs were mariachi, conjunto norteño, and ballet flacorico. And that seemed to be at that time, we're probably talk, we're talking 2010, 2012-ish. Yeah. Um, I got to meet Dolores Huerta. She did you came, really? She visited the school. I was in sixth grade. She spoke. Oh, my goodness. And we saw her uh, at the Court Youth Center. She spoke and, and, and shared with us how we are all African-American. We all come from... Right. From that ancestry and that we need to be equal. And wow, I wasn't aware of that. It was so empowering. Well, you, so where did you go? You went to La Academia de Dolores Huerta for yes. middle school. Where did you go to high school? I went to early college uh, high school, Arrowhead Park. And that's where you got into doing uh, what you're doing now professionally. You're doing a yeah. lot of digital media. Uh, tell Video. Me, yeah, talk yeah. about that. So uh, when I got into high school, I really missed music. I'm not going to lie. So I had after school programs that I went to. I went to the Court Youth Center and I did my mariachi. I went uh, to the Brown Again Cultural Center, and I performed Padre Folclorico with Jose Tena uh, for Tierra del Encanto. Uh, and I also got my associate's degree out of high school. I uh, really enjoyed art, so I got an associate's of art. 
And then I got certifications uh, from the creative media side of DACC, uh, one in digital video and another in creative media technology. And at what point, when did you graduate? I graduated at 20 or in 2014. In 2014. Now, did mm-hmm. you do any any college? You go to the branch, go to NMSU after that? Um, I I got pregnant at 17. Okay. So it was right out of uh, right out of my senior year. I tried to go back to school, but the situation was right. just too rocky. So um, I I had to pull out of college. Now, somebody who is in that digital media field and doing digital digital media production uh, with all the arts and things like that, how do you do? You work for somebody? Do you set up your own? Do you solicit business, or if you're if you're in business for yourself, do you just solicit everything online? How do those jobs come up? How does that all work? Sure. Um, so a lot of my work has been in uh, technical support. So I started off with Apple technical support. Got to speak to George Strait one time, help him move his iPhone 4 to an iPhone 5. It was pretty awesome. And we talked about the and mariachi did, music. And how did talk- you confirm it was him? You know, that was that was a tough thing. I saw his name and I was like, okay, it's just some person named George Strait. You know, it can't be him. And then I started to review, like, the notes on the account, and it was all, like, uh, George Strait's assistant called, you know, and I'm like, okay, this might really be him. So I asked him, you know, I just went out for it and I told him, you know, are you George Strait, you know, the performing artist? He said, I am. And he was watching the Cowboys play football. It was a Sunday and he was just the coolest person. And well, if you so couldn't sweet. tell by that, I mean, I, I was going to, I thought it was leading up to you, but when I actually talked to him on the phone, I recognized his voice. It wasn't that, you know, no. he just sounded like a regular person. Wow. Um, it was so wonderful. And, and I had told him that I was a mariachi and I told him that I, you know, I love music. And he's like, have you heard me sing the song El Rey? And I was like, of course I have. You know, it was just so cool to, to have that conversation with him while working for Apple. Right. So at some point you moved on and you're pretty much doing, you're a small business owner at this point, correct? Well, at this point I would love to be, you know, a full business owner, but I'm currently working for a client and doing work that way and just kind of saving up to one day have my business. Well, I mean, if you if you have a client, it means you're offering services that you're being paid for. I mean, I would call that a small business owner. Oh, thank you. Yes. What, what kind of project are you working on without getting, I mean, without spoiling anything or right. saying any names that you don't need to be said or don't wish to be said? I mean, sure. what kind of work are you doing? I do webcast production. Okay. So we do uh, webinars and things like that for big names, uh, getting work done through this COVID-19 crisis and, and just staying active. Well, I'm going to I'm going to give the kind of simplistic question that, that somebody who's not into digital anything um I mean, I'm, I'm, I am an end user's end user. I can do what I can do, but um, isn't it just as, as simple as setting up a Zoom call? You know, there's so many aspects that I'm learning. You know, you know, you have to monitor uh, bandwidth. You have to monitor audio quality, video quality. You have to have 10 different backups of if the video goes out, what are we going to do, you know? And we have to also coordinate, make sure all of the presenters and the people that are, you know, part of this project are on the same page and that they have all the resources they need. And so I'm the person that comes in to help manage and, and uh, coordinate all that. Now, does that, and, and you completely surprised me because I thought you were going to talk about things uh, that I'm going to ask you about now. It, what goes into, uh, when you're talking about webinars, is there uh, the design? I mean, obviously you have your little window where you can see mm-hmm. who it is you're talking to, but at some point there's got to be some artwork or some digital imagery that goes into it make the screen look pretty is there a selling of advertising or other things like that is that part of putting on webinars thank goodness no (laughs) (laughs) that would be a lot of work um all that is handled by the client so thankfully i just come in and 
and run the show. <laughs> well, you, um, you, we've talked a lot about, and I, and I really hope I didn't spend too much time on this, but I think it kind of sets the stage for where we're going. You've had a tragedy in your life and you've yeah. had challenges, mm -hmm. but you seem to be in an unbelievably uh, positive and good place right now. And you have a husband, Jacobo, yes. uh -huh. um, who you love very much and he loves you very much. How did you guys meet? You know, through digital media. <laughs> he added me on Snapchat. And apparently he had me added on all of the social media platforms. I just didn't know. And through Snapchat, he would compliment me and he would send me little cute messages like if we were in school, you know. <laughs> and um, later on, I learned that he was an avid follower. He knew my story. He knew about Isabella. Um, and he just wanted to be my friend. He wanted to be there and, and support me. And, and so when we got to hang out for the first time, that kind of was the last time we ever had to really try to be together. It was, we were best friends from that day. So you met your husband on Instagram. I cannot think of anything more millennial. <laughs> Snapchat. Even more oh, I'm millennial. I'm sorry, Snapchat. <laughs> now that's that's one platform I don't use. No, yeah. there's literally nothing more millennial than having met your spouse on social media. Right. My goodness. <laughs> well, you know, you're not just a, a singer. Uh, you're not just a creative of digital media, but you're also a dancer as well. Yes. Um, and you are uh, very, very open. I won't say open, but you, you like to share your dancing. Um, you, you, you post your videos on the Facebook. Uh, I haven't seen it on Instagram yet, but um, tell me how you got into Zumba and, and what that's all about. Sure. So uh, through Ballet Folklorico, um, I, I got introduced to Zumba. Uh, so Jose Tena, it was the Ballet Folklorico instructor. His wife got certified in Zumba. Her name's Lucy Tena, and uh, she was my first Zumba instructor. She is amazing she still teaches and uh that was where i got started with zumba and then um when we moved to albuquerque my husband would train at uh at jackson's Acoma and they had a, a mat that they were so kindly uh they're so gracious in letting me use and so i would drill work on my salsa work on my uh reggaeton i wasn't too familiar with the other styles that zumba had but those were my my passions at the time so when we came back to las cruces um my husband he was was very confident in that I should get certified and start teaching. And so in my certification, I learned that Zumba was a mixture of four different styles. We have salsa, reggaeton, cumbia, and merengue. And so very Latin-based, very fun, very high energy. It's uh, intermittent training, so it's going to be uh, intermittent interval training. So there's very high pace, and then it slows down high pace, and it really helps push our clients. Now, I hadn't really thought of it like that. It, now, you're, the way you're describing uh, Zumba to me, this mixture of, of all these different uh, styles of dancing, sounds a little bit like mixed martial arts yeah. uh, being a you know a mixture of, of lots of traditional, uh, both striking and grappling arts. Is Zumba purely uh, an exercise uh, activity, or is it a performance art as well? It could totally be a performance art. The the basic steps that we're teaching you is for you to build on. We want you to build on those steps. We want you to move more parts of your body. You know, we want you to experiment with it. Music is fun. Dance is even more fun because you get to move your body to the music. Your body becomes your instrument. And so um, I absolutely believe that Zumba is an introductory to, you know, becoming a performer in, in the field. Now, what about for somebody who's hopelessly, hopelessly white with two left feet like me? Anyone can dance. We are all biologically designed to dance. 
I'll take your word for it, Lupe. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to try. Now, one, you know, you and I have you and I have spoken before, and I was really having a tough time searching for the word to describe um, what I feel when I see you uh, dancing. Uh, you put your dance videos up, and you know, we we've talked a lot about you've had your 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 issues about which you're self conscious, uh, your weight, your appearance, mm-hmm. um, and things like that. The one thing that I can say is uh, I think the best way to describe it is admiration. When I see you post a video of yourself dancing with a crop top and a, uh, you know, yoga pants or whatever you want to call them, uh, you know, critics be damned, judges be damned, and you get out there and you do your thing and you're beautiful and your body moves and you're confident. I have nothing but admiration. Thank you. Um, And that's something that I don't know that I could ever, you know, do. But I would be, you know, remiss if I didn't. You need, and I think it's people. You know that about yourself. You know you're confident. You know you can. You know you're a beautiful woman. But to hear that people are seeing that through what you're putting on social media, I think, is also very important. Now, I'm not going to let you go today, having talked about your singing, having talked about your dancing, uh, without asking you to uh, give us a few notes, sing us some bars, let it, let us all hear. Um, now, you, I don't remember the name of the song you posted. Uh, you song you sang with your father. Yes. Uh, what's the name of that song? Te quise olvidar. And you hit a probably about thirty to forty-five seconds in a note that I was that close. Had I had some vodka on board, <laughs> I, I would have felt it that much more. We might have turned on the water. But um, would you would you mind giving our listeners just a taste of you know what what you're able to produce? Your, sure. I mean, your voice is something. I'll sing that song, um, and I before I sing it, I kind of want to touch on the meaning and 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 the love that's behind it. Um, It's about loss. And it's about wishing to forget a person because life would be easier without the memory. And when I sing it, I think of my daughter. I think of um, the pain we we went through and the adversity we both overcame Um, and the love I have for her. So um, I hope you guys enjoy it. And... uh, you guys can also find a copy of this version of me singing it on my social media. Uh, you just search Lupe Martos. Quisiera saber si todavía me quieres, si todavía me extrañas para volver contigo. Estoy tan sola y triste, cansada de extrañarte, cansada de llorar. Te quise olvidar, pero no puedo lograrlo. Estoy arrepentida, enferma, triste y sola. Y aquí en mi sufrimiento te pido que perdones a mi pobre corazón. Quisiera saber, saber si aún me quieres. Hoy quiero volver contigo, vida mía, y comenzar de nuevo 
Aquel amor bonito solo tú puedes darme la vida. La vida otra vez. Ladies and gentlemen, nothing more needs to be said. Maria Guadalupe Martos, thank you very much for being my guest. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we will see you next time on the Square Peg Podcast. This has been an episode of the Square Peg Podcast, starring Andrew Lawrence and his cast of Mold Breakers, Trailblazers, and Takers of Roads Less Traveled. Until then, we'll see you on the next Road Less Traveled?